It's so good to be here with all of you, and I love my introduction from Julie. That was very sweet. Um, especially since this week, I've been wondering why I'm giving this talk, because I'm struggling with most of what I'm talking about. And I think that the Lord always works like that whenever we're writing something or going through something, it seems like the spiritual warfare that we're under is exactly what we're writing about or what we're studying about. And so that was really nice. Thank you for that reminder. Um, so I am so excited to be here. I think that in the last two years, I've realized how important community is. Anybody else with me on that? Yeah, it, you just don't take it for granted like you used to. And so coming up here with a group of women and fellowshipping and being a part of last night and praying over women, that was something special. And two years is a really long time, especially when measured in, in fear and uncertainty. And when we talk in numbers of sickness and death, it seems like an eternity, right? It, time has kind of stood still these last two years and... Our world has changed, but not only our world, our nation and our church has changed as well. And it's not all bad, but if you're anything like me and I don't like change, it can feel bad. And so I think that with the church, I think one of the great things that we've seen, one of the great changes that we've seen is that we now no longer take community for granted. And we understand how important it is to meet with a body of believers to to bind us together and to help us to go out into the world and preach the gospel, amen? And so I'm excited that we get to do that this weekend. I feel like Hume Lake is a little bit of a pasture, like you. It, God takes you off of the road and gives you some grassland to graze in, to rest. He gives us a time of pasture here, and I'm excited to be a part of that with you guys. But I have really come to wanting to understand how we can build up this next generation that is coming, um, not only just the next generation, but just those around us as we live in a, a world of fear and uncertainty. And the thing that stands out to me as more heart-wrenching than mask mandates or vaccine status in the chaos of this pandemic is how many people are leaving the church. And I'm not talking about uh, a denomination or a building, I'm talking about leaving the body of believers that proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Leaving Jesus and all that he has done and all that he, he is, washing their hands of a gospel that they have preached for years. That's the part that makes me sad. And every time I hear of another person deconverting, which is a huge term in our society, or deconverting or, or deconstructing their faith, I wonder why. Why is it that we have this desire to leave Jesus? And I sat with that question for a long time wondering why. And I just have to tell you, a lot of times for me, I get stuck in the why because a lot of times there's not an answer. So I think the more helpful question is, what can be done? Because that has a proactive approach to it. There's hope to it that something can be done. So what can be done for our kids and our grandkids? as they grow up in a world where truth is relative and terms like deconstruction and deconversion are commonplace, how can re they re rebuild what has been broken down? And I wanna really quickly say that deconstructing your faith isn't always bad. 
there's a time and place for it. There are good and healthy ways to do that. But what I'm seeing in our society is that so many people like to talk about or post about their deconstruction process that they forget to tell us what's being rebuilt in its place. And that's the part that I'm interested in because that's the part that's more important. What are you building or rebuilding on? Is it the truth? Is it the truth of God's word? Because that is the only solid foundation that we have. So when we deconstruct and we go through periods of time when we have to deconstruct false beliefs that don't align with God's word, you make sure that you're rebuilding on the truth of God's word and not on the wisdom of man. Because the wisdom of man is really blown and tossed by whatever is popular at the time. And I believe this is why so many people are leaving the faith is because they're building their faith on a shaky foundation, something that's changeable. And the truth of God is unchanging. That's why it's solid. That's why it stands the test of time as we will see by a man of Nehemiah. So what can be done for our kids and grandkids as they grow up in a world where truth is relative and really Christ followers are looked at with disdain because they're not tolerant, because they're choosing to believe and align their life on God's word? What can be done when public opinion is really in our culture sought after more than the wisdom of God? And recently I was just talking to a friend of mine whose son is a believer. He has children and a wife and he told his mom that he doesn't care what faith his children choose just as long as they're happy. And that made me sad because obviously he has no idea what the gospel actually says because Jesus makes no apologies when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that's the only way for us to get to heaven. There is no other way. But see, we live in a culture where happiness is our chief ethic, meaning that it is the pinnacle of morality. It's the greatest thing that you can strive for is your individual happiness. And so we would rather take our happiness, no matter how temporary it is, over our eternal security. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. We should be more concerned about our eternity than our temporary happiness. And that's where Nehemiah talks to us is that as I read through his book in the Old Testament, I realized that he was answering many of the questions that I was having. And he was a Jewish exile. And I don't know if you guys know anything about the history of Israel, but I'm going to give you a really quick recap because I like to make sure that we understand the context in which the person that we're studying lives because that helps us to understand what he's about, what he's talking about. So Israel was a united nation under Saul, David, and Solomon. Most of us have heard of those three kings. But when Solomon was king, he lived a very lavish, opulent lifestyle. And how did he afford it? By taxing the people. He taxed his people not only with money, but forced labor burdens. So when he dies, his son Rehoboam rises up, and the people are, are upset. And they say, could you please give us tax relief? You know, take away our forced labor burdens. And Rehoboam is a fool, and he says, no, instead of de decreasing those things, I'm going to increase those things. And so the people get upset. They, they rise up, and they split into two nations. There are 12 tribes of Israel, 10 tribes of, 
um, 10 tribes go with the northern kingdom, and they call themselves Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and two tribes go with the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah now has Jerusalem and controls the temple, which is essential to a part of Jewish life. As the, the years go on, God sends prophets into these two countries and says, repent, draw near to me, turn away from what you're serving and come back to me. And the northern kingdom of Israel never has one godly king. They're all evil. And so they, the Lord in his discipline, allows the Assyrian empire to come and overtake them. And the people are assimilated into the Assyrian culture. About 130 years after the northern kingdom falls, God's sending prophets into Judah. And, pro and Judah has some godly kings, but they have some very evil kings as well. And Judah does not repent. And the Lord allows as his discipline the, the um, new empire, the new world empire, Babylon, to come in and um, overtake the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah's people are taken, the best and the brightest, because this is what Babylon did, the best and the brightest were taken into their country and they left a remnant in Jerusalem. And this is what ha happens to uh, Nehemiah's family. So as most world kingdoms go, they rise and they fall. And so the Babylonian empire fell to the Persian empire. And this is where we meet up with Nehemiah. All of that to tell you where we see him. So it is, it is a, a very, he is a lone person that was born in exile. He's never been to Judah, never been to Jerusalem, and this is where we meet up with him right now. And he is a, he is a cupbearer in the king's court which is a pretty prestigious position, one that is very, very trusted because he is responsible for the king's cup, making sure that the king doesn't get poisoned because many times that's how you overthrew a kingdom. And so it, at, at great peril to himself, he would take on the responsibility of taking uh, a drink of the cup before he gave it to the king to make sure there weren't, wasn't poison. And this is where the Lord has Nehemiah. He is a Jewish exile that has the confidence of a pagan king. Isn't it interesting how God uses our positions? It's amazing the influence that we can have for Christ in any position that you're currently in. No matter if you're on your knees begging God to take you out of that position, know that he has you there. And because he has you there, what can you do in that place? What influence do you have over the people around you? God has given you a sphere of influence, and so ask yourself the question, what are some ways that I can make a difference right where I'm at? And we see Nehemiah do this. And I wish we had many weeks together to unpack all of the wisdom of God's word in the book of Nehemiah. It has a lot of wisdom. I'm a line-by-line -line Bible study teacher, but I understand that we're pressed for time, so we're going to kind of take some passages to move us along to answer the question, how can we, how can we make a difference in the culture that we're currently in? How can we affect change to the kingdom of God? And King Artaxerxes is the Persian king that 
that uh, Nehemiah serves under. He's been in power for about 20 years when a man by the name of Hanani comes from Jerusalem. Hanani is Nehemiah's brother, and he has news of what's happening in Jerusalem. And so when we begin our uh, study here, we're going to start in Nehemiah 1, if you want to follow along, 1, 2 through 7. Nehemiah is talking, and he says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. Remember, there is a Jewish remnant left in Jerusalem that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Can I stop here for a second and make you realize that he is calling out the character of his God. God of heaven, all creation, you are sovereign and powerful, and you are a covenant-keeping God. Do you realize that in Nehemiah's time, him saying that he is a covenant-keeping God is pretty amazing? Because where is Israel? At that point, Israel really didn't exist. There's 10 tribes that are assimilated into the Assyrian culture and two tribes that have been exiled. And now he's just gotten news that Jerusalem is in ruins, and yet he's saying, oh God, covenant-keeping God, this God who said, Israel, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And now he is saying you're a covenant-keeping God, even though his eyes can see nothing but destruction. Isn't that incredible? It teaches us that even though what we see does not determine who our God is. No matter what the world looks like, your God is still in control. Amen? No matter how many people are fearful over their futures, you know what your future is in Christ. Amen? It is important that we understand that. God's character is not determined by your circumstances. And when we cannot see him, when we cannot, when we, it totally looks like he has let Israel down. Nehemiah chooses in faith to believe his God is who he said he is over what he sees. And it's so important that we do the same things. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. The very first thing that Nehemiah does when he hears about the people um, of God and the city of Jerusalem in ruins is that he weeps over what has been lost. It's okay for us to grieve over what has been lost in this world. It is, it's ever changing. It's changing so quickly right now. And a lot of it is not good. It's okay to be there, but just don't stay there. Don't stay in that place. And that is what Nehemiah shows us is that he gets up, he fasts and he prays, interceding for the people of Israel. And the best thing that we can do when we're unsure of what to do, when everything around us is overwhelming us and, heart, and we're heartbroken over the state of things, 
when everything seems to be in ruins, is that we can fast and we can pray. I think fasting is a discipline that isn't as practiced as, as much as it once was. And I really do think it's because we live in a culture where happiness is our chief ethic. And let me tell you, fasting doesn't make you happy. I just did it on Monday for this, for this um, time here this weekend. And I thought it was going to be just me and the Lord communing. You know, we're just so close. We're singing songs together. You know what it looked like? Me screaming at my kids because I was so hungry. <laughs> And then remembering and going and repenting in my bedroom and coming out, my husband comes home and me yelling at him. That's what it looked like. And then me saying, Lord, I've got to do it better. I've got to do it better. Because at first I was like, I'm not doing that again. That was terrible. And the Lord reminded me, you know what? Sometimes we're immature in disciplines and that's okay. Keep practicing them. Keep practicing them because that was doing something for me. It was reminding me to pray to give up what I wanted, to take in what he needed, because I needed times of prayer. All of us need those times of prayer, and we need to be reminded, reminded that just like we want food, we want Jesus, and we want what he wants for this world, and we want what he wants for our lives. So fasting is good. It's good, and praying shouldn't be a last resort, something when we do when all else fails when we feel like we no longer can control the situation, we go to fasting. No, it should be our first line of defense, not a last resort. Our first line of defense. And remember, prayer is powerful, and it is effective. And we need to remember that amazing things happen when God's people get down on their knees and they cry out to their God. Amazing things happen, and we see that in Nehemiah. We need to be praying for our world. I love the example of Nehemiah when I was writing this. I realized, you know what he did? Because he was born in exile. He hadn't participated in the sins of Judah that caused the destruction. And yet, what does he do? He inserts himself into the narrative. Did you guys pick up on that? Because I love it. It says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Can you imagine? He, can, he puts himself into the narrative, understanding that even though he didn't take part in that, he was a sinner, and he, was, he needed to repent. He needed that before his God. See, confession can be a bad word in our society, just like fasting is, because it doesn't make us happy. It, it doesn't make us happy to think about what we've done wrong, to think about how we've hurt someone. Confession doesn't make us happy because it might lead to accountability. And who wants that, right? We don't want someone else getting into our business. And this is where relative truth comes into the church. Is that someone can come to us and say, hey, I've seen something in your life. And we can go, oh, no, no, no. You don't get to speak in my life. You don't, you don't get that, that. That is for other people, not for you. And just because you think it's wrong, it's not wrong for me. And all of a sudden, it's a slippery slope of relative truth. And it is ruining our world. It really is. It's ruining our society. So just because we don't like to dwell on things we may have done wrong, we need to not skip over that part. We need to go and pick up the phone for accountability. We need to go to the Lord and get on our knees for confession. Confession is needed for healing because it humbles our heart to a loving God. As he, as he cleanses us of the wrong that we've taken part in. Listen to these words from the Bible. 
James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's that word again. Connecting that confession and healing. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Don't you forget that. That is a promise from God. It doesn't matter if you've been praying the same prayer for 20 years and you haven't seen a thing change. Do not let the enemy tell you it is ineffective. Be like Nehemiah and choose to believe your God's promises over what your circumstances look like. You continue to get on your knees and you continue to pray that prayer. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it is effective effective. And we need to remember that and stay down on our knees, continuing to pray. We continue to pray. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Have you ever, any of you guys ever been sin sick? Because it doesn't feel good. When you're refusing to confess and all of that anger is inside of you and you get that chip on your shoulder and you don't want anything to do with the Lord or, or his word. And yet the Bible tells us, Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And it doesn't matter how many times you are confessing the same sin, your God will give you mercy. He is not a grudge-keeping God. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you mercy, and his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. I think that that's the biggest a uh, shock to me in Christianity is how many times I've had to confess the same sin. You know, I'm almost 50 years old, and all of a sudden I'm like, well, I thought I would have had this dealt with by now. I've been dealing with this same thing for 20 years. I'm tired of confessing it. I mean, he's got to be tired of hearing it, and yet that's the lie. That's the lie. His, his mercies are new every morning. He knew me from the beginning to the end. He knows exactly what I'm going to confess and how many more times I'm going to confess it. He understands that. He isn't in my mind and he doesn't have my time frame. He is above all of it. And so we need to remember that. Acts 3, 19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come. Isn't th those are three words, healing, mercy, refreshing, that are connected to confession. Let's be women that get down on our knees, put ourselves into the narrative of this world walking away from Jesus. Because let me tell you something, it didn't just happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It's been decades in the making of people watching the people of God as they choose what makes them happy over what God commands. This is the part of this talk that has convicted me so much this week. How have I been choosing my happiness over what God commands? And I can't even tell you, it's so pervasive in my life. It's so pervasive in my life. I'm asking the Lord, please help me to root it out because I don't even know all the places that it is right now. So we need to put ourselves in that narrative. Brennan Manning said, the greatest single cause of atheism in our world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, if you're a 90s girl and you really like DC Talk, such as me, then you've heard that before because it was made, made popular on one of their albums. And I, it came to me and I, I was thinking about it and I thought, where did that come from? And then I found out it's by Brennan Manning. And I just, I love that because one of my friends always tells me more is caught than taught when she's talking about parenting. And I hate that because it keeps me on my toes because it's saying my kids are watching my actions over my words. 
And they see what I'm doing more than what I'm saying. And the same is true of our world. They're watching us. They're watching our actions more than our words. So let's recognize our part in perpetuating the lie that the world satisfies more than Jesus every time we go for something that makes us happy or comfortable or secure over following the commands of our Savior. Something happens when the world sees us living differently than we're proclaiming. After fasting and mourning over what had been lost and after prayer and confession over what had been done, Nehemiah now prays for favor with the king because he knows it's time to take action. How many of you hate taking action? I'm going to raise my hand here because as I told you, I am not a change person. I don't like change and taking action makes me uncomfortable. And so very this is the this is the part I get all tripped up on. Praying for the opportunity to take action makes me afraid and I just want to back up and go, "Oh, I'm good. I'm good in the in the prayer and fasting part." Well, not really the fasting part, right? But I'll, I'll pray. <laughs> I'll pray for some people. And yet the Lord's like, hey, no, no, no. You wait for opportunity to take action. And we see Nehemiah do that. And when opportunity presents itself, he was ready to take it. We're now in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 6. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Remember, he is the cupbearer, so of course this is what he would do. He said, I, not ha I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, <clears throat> why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I want to stop there for a second, because this was convicting to me. Do you realize that the king saw a difference in his life, and that's what made this little space open up for a dialogue between a king and a servant? just because he saw him live differently. And I have to wonder if the world looks at my life when they're full of fear and uncertainty, I wonder if they see the peace of Jesus in my life and wonder what I have. And I have to think, I don't think they have lately. And I wonder if when everything is sad around me, if they see the joy of Jesus in my life. And I am not telling you to repress how you actually feel and pretend something. That's not what I'm saying. I am all for emotional health. But there are so many times that believers look like the world because we're fear, fearing the same thing they're fearing. We forget that we have the peace of Jesus. We forget that we have the joy of Christ that lives in us, in his spirit. And I wonder if they saw a difference in my life would it allow an opportunity for dialogue to open up? For, for me to have some sort of ability to speak into spaces that I would not have had otherwise. And I love that Nehemiah had that. And this is how he answers. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, and I love that, because when opportunity to take action comes to you, do not think that you won't be afraid. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. So many times we think if we're fearing something, we have to back off. And the Lord's like, no, no, no. If you fear something, do it anyway. When it comes from me, you, do, you take action. And he said, may the king live forever. 
Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king says to me, what is it you want? So how are you? And then what do you want me to do for you? And he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. He is just right there doing arrow prayers because he's flying by the seat of his pants in this thing and he is terrified. And he answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, he's humble himself here. Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him, and let me tell you something, this always intrigues me when the Bible gives you a little bit of a detail because it's not an accident, everything that is in the Bible, and you wonder if that kind of softened what the king was going to do. He said, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. The reason Nehemiah was so afraid at this point is because really his request could have been seen as treason. And that never went well for anyone, right? Because he was asking to go rebuild the main city of a kingdom that had already been conquered. A servant is asking a king of that. And most of the time, kings wouldn't look at that as a good thing as a really great strategy of growing their kingdom is to have competition. But the amazing thing about God is that King Artaxerxes not only gives him his blessing, he also sends him with protection from his army, and he gives him papers so he can buy supplies. So he funds his project. I love how the Lord works. Nothing is too hard for our God But did you see that there had to be some faith on his servant Nehemiah to ask? He had to ask. And that was probably the most scary thing in the world because he didn't know how the king would respond. And I wonder if that's how we we find out that the queen was sitting right beside him. It softened the king. So the king allows him to go to rebuild this kingdom And I want you to know that our world is really, spiritually speaking, in the same disrepair that Jerusalem was. It it really has a a lot of pieces of that same thing, of, of of people turning away from God and things being deconstructed. And Nehemiah showed us what the deconstruction of Israel looked like, and now he's going to go there and he's going to show us what the rebuilding process looks like. So Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem And he starts surveying all that needs to be done, and he's realizing that this project is huge. He can't do it on his own. And so he's going to need some help, and the Lord allows the passion of Nehemiah to rub off on others. And in Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So they're sitting amongst the ruins, this group of people. So how does he motivate them to get started on this project? In verse 18, it said, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said. And guess what that did? They said, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. When we tell of what the Lord has done and is doing, it is contagious. And rebuilding starts with remembering and recounting all that God has done and remembering to to also talk about what the Lord is currently doing. See, they're sitting amongst the ruins. 
of Jerusalem. That's what they could be talking about. They could just be talking about how upset they are that it is in ruins and how much work it's going to be done to get it built up. But instead, he starts talking about his God. He takes his eyes off of what he sees and he puts them on his God and people respond to that. Why? Because people are so desperate, desperate for some good news. And these people had not seen God work in a really long time. And now Nehemiah brings them hope. And hope is a powerful, powerful ally. Don't be someone that only talks about the frustrations of life. That sits and just stares at the rubble and the ruins around us. Look up to your God. What is he doing? I promise he is working somewhere doing something. Let's have eyes to see that. Be someone that rallies the troops towards rebuilding what is broken. How are you bringing hope to your sphere of influence? Because they need it. I'm going to let you in on a a little secret. They need it. So do you. You need to know that there's hope. There's hope. God's not done with this world. He's not. His believers are in it. He wants to mobilize them. He wants them to start rebuilding. All, every single one of us gets to play a part in that. And I think that so many times we start thinking things globally. How can I affect change globally? And then we get paralyzed because it's such a big task. But I think sometimes the Lord just wants us to start where we're at with the people around us and the positions that we're in. I think that that is the most clear message of Nehemiah. Start where you're at. What does God want you to do today with the people he has you in, around you, the work that he has for you? And what do you know? As soon as they start building, they just start. The very next verse, something happens. It says in verse 19, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is it that you're doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I love his confidence in God. I think that so many times we forget that when we are saved, when we trust in Jesus and we have his Holy Spirit in us, that we are no longer a slave to sin and death. And yet so many times we listen to the enemy that says, no, 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 you're still shackled to your shame. You're you're still shackled to your desires. And then the Lord is saying, no, 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 you're not. You have freedom. Walk in it. And what we need to tell the enemy is you have no claim here. And it had nothing to do with Nehemiah or the servants that were helping him. It had everything to do with God. See, Nehemiah knew that God had gotten him this far, and he knew he would continue to do so. He knew that it was up to him to rebuild this wall, and the same is true of our lives. God has gotten you this far, and there's been some really rough patches, amen? And he will continue, because he's faithful. Your God is a faithful, loving father. He can be nothing but faithful. Do you know that? Because that is his character. Believe that. Oppression reared its ugly head right away, and I don't want to totally spoil the story for you if you want to go and read it, but these men, these three men, will come back time and time and time again. 
And at first it's with psychological warfare, telling them everything that they're not, everything that they can't do. And I just have to tell you, I'm an easy target because psychological warfare usually works on me. The enemy's like, Julie, you can't do this. I'm like, you're right, I can't. And I stopped doing it, but not Nehemiah. And I love his example because he just keeps going and the project keeps getting further and the threats keep getting worse. They keep getting worse. And we can expect much the same thing when we're rebuilding. We will be ridiculed. We will be made fun of. There will be threats that will cause us to fear, threats against us, threats against our family. That's usually where I stop. When I see one of my kids struggling in something, I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm out. Instead of believing that my God is bigger, my God is bigger than those threats. And that's what Nehemiah believed. You need to spend time reminding yourself of all God is because during the war, it is really hard to remember truth. When you're right there in the middle of it, I, I always have a, a lady that says, make sure you're memorizing truth in times of light so you can recall it in the darkness. And it's so true because in the darkness, you, sometimes you just can't even talk, you can't speak. She talked about that last night. There have been times when I just put the Bible on my chest and I'm just like, I, I can't read it, Lord. I can't read it. And, and the Lord brings to my mind things that I've memorized during light because there will be times of extreme darkness and we need to make sure that we're memorizing things in light so we can recall it in times of darkness. And I love that Nehemiah, every time he met with opposition, he spoke truth back to his enemy or he prayed to his God. I think sometimes when Nehemiah started to agree with the enemy is when he started praying. Before he was like, no, 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 you have no claim on this. And then right here in Nehemiah 6, 9, it says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. And I wonder if, his, uh, if Nehemiah was saying, you're right, my hands are weak. I don't know if this is going to get finished. And so what does he do? He prays and he says, now strengthen my hands. How many of us need to pray, pray that prayer? Oh, God, strengthen my hands because I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm weak. This isn't going to go to completion if it's up to me, so strengthen my hands. We need to pray that prayer over the work the Lord has for us in this world. So this wall is completed in 52 days, which is the hand of God using a willing person. Are you willing to be used by God to take back and rebuild what is rightfully his? Are you? And the hard part of the rebuilding process isn't even over because see what God wanted him to do is to rebuild the spiritual life of a nation because Israel hadn't, they didn't know what uh, serving God looked like anymore. And that's what Nehemiah was charged with and in Nehemiah 8.18, it says, day after day, from the first to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with regulation, there was an assembly. So how did Nehemiah rebuild their spiritual lives? With the word of God. Not just listening to it, but obeying it. And if you read the book, it didn't go well. It had ups and downs, just like your life will. It's not always just like, oh, I'm doing it right now. There's always a spiritual upward trajectory. It is peaks and valleys. And what we do in those valleys matters. We get ourselves up and we continue on. We listen to the word of God and we obey it. And I want to end, really, I, I'm going to change my ending a little bit because I'm just thinking uh, 
a lot about this week. This week has been a lot of spiritual warfare for me because I wrote this really in response to myself as I have two young grandbabies and after my friend was talking to me about what her son said, I just got down on my knees and I asked the Lord, I I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do, but what I know is I want my babies to grow up knowing you. And I want them to live a life where they know that you love them, that they're loved. That's what I want for them. And I don't want this world to take that from them. How do I do it? And I think that the Lord showed me this week as I've just been struggling. And I didn't know it was spiritual warfare. I mean, it took me until Friday when I woke up and I'm just like, I'm not the one to give this talk. I need to be in the audience listening to it because I'm not doing it well. And the Lord just, I opened the Bible app. And if you read Friday's verse of the day, it said, put on the full armor of God. And all of a sudden I was like, my God is so good. Because he reminded me that I was in a war. And that all these thoughts that I was having, yeah, they're true. I am not up for the task. But my God is. You put on your spiritual armor. And you go and you speak the truth of God's word in a world that does not want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And we need to stop. We need to start calling wrong, wrong. And stand up on the truth of God's word. And guess what? There may be things in there that offend you. And that's okay. It doesn't make it less true. And I think in this world we've gotten to the place where if it offends you, it's not truth. And that's wrong. And we need to be teaching our kids that. And we need to be reading the word of God for ourselves. Not just listening to someone else talk about it. but, But actually in the word of God. Asking the Holy Spirit to guide you, because that's what he does. And amazing things happen when we do that. So how do we teach godly culture to the next generation? This enormous question was broken down for us by a man that lived thousands of years ago. He showed us how to answer it by simply living his life to the glory of God. And we need to be doing the same for those around us. We can fast to the glory of God and pray to the glory of God and confess our sins and read the word and take action and stand in truth and when opposition comes and trust our God over our circumstances. But what we really need to be doing is getting out into the world and not only proclaiming Jesus with our lips but proclaiming him with our lifestyle as well. And healing will happen. It isn't a global thing. God has asked you to be a part of wherever you are right now. When you leave this mountain and you go to the people that live in your home, that work at your work, that is the mission field God has for you. And right now, this weekend, God has given you a place of pasture. He's taking you off the rocky path, and he's giving you some green pasture. Spend it with him. Figure out what you need to do so you can get back on that road with encouraging, knowing that your God goes with you. Your God goes with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for this weekend. I need it. I thank you for times of bringing us together and making us realize how important community is. And I thank you that, you, that you're not done with this world. And even though it's scary and things around us look like we're not used to, God, you have a plan and a purpose, and you're still actively working. I pray that we would be women that base our lives on the truth of your word. It is the only truth we have. 
I pray that we would build our faith on that. Go before us and behind us and hem us in on all sides and fight for us and let us remember to put on our armor. Let us not so easily believe the enemy's lies and stop working. And God, just even for me right now, I just pray for forgiveness, for wanting my happiness and my security over what you command. Please help us to be women who repent easily and humbly come before your, our God so that healing and mercy and refreshing may come. Go with us this weekend. May our hearts be open to your teaching. Amen.